Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of July 2018 and this is episode number 71. On today's programme, I talked to Dr Adrian Gregson about his new book, From Docks and Sand, Southport and Bootle's Battalion, the 7th King's Liverpool Regiment in the First World War, published by Helian and Co. I spoke to Adrian over the interweb. Hi Adrian, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start us by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm. basically I grew up in Lancashire, on the Lancashire coast. I got interested, I think, probably through studying English when I was doing, we were doing War Pirates. Uh, uh, and then that sort of came back into my head later on when uh, I studied history at university and started, really started just getting into local history, community history and talking to members of the family. And, and, and the whole whole idea about the First World War came out of that, I think. So, Adrian, where, is, where does the title from Docks and Sand come from? Well, this is, this is really based directly on, on the locale. You know, this, these are Bootle's Docks and Southport Sands, and this is the theme which runs through the book and through the battalion itself, and that, that's, that just, I think that's the emphasis that, that I was trying to get over, and, and I hope I've done that. So your book, uh, published by Helian, is about the 7th Battalion King's Liverpool Rifles. Why did you write this book on the 7th Battalion, and what does your book focus on? I mean, as I say, the, 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 the driver, really, I think, for um, my interest came from talking to my grandma, and, and her brother had been killed uh, during the war. And I think it was really in the in the 1990s, and we were just there were veterans around, but we were starting to sort of pay more attention to memorialisation and stuff about the First World War at that stage. And so I was talking to her, and she said, you know, her brother had been killed, and he she'd seen him once or twice after uh, after he'd enlisted. It turned out it was the seventh. I started doing some investigation and research about the seventh battalion, and and then discovered that actually it was quite an interesting example of uh, a territorial force of an area and an an area of study. I think which has been somewhat neglected uh, in in more recent First World War historiography. You know, I'm pleased that I've, that I've been able to put something on. Uh, on the table that is about a battalion that's not been looked at before, that it contributes to the the, the wider dis- discussion about the territorial army. It it, it also f- fits in with an, a range of other books about regiments in Liverpool and, and that local area. So I, I think that, uh, I hope that people will find it interesting and, uh, and uh, you know, a useful addition to the story, really. You talk about the sort of area um, that they come from, which I think was Bootle and Southport. What was that area like in 1914? I mean, basically, it's the West Lancashire coast, southwest Lancashire coast. It, it, Bootle is, is at the north end of Liverpool. It's a bit that sticks out. It's where Anthony Gormley's got his his statues on Crosby Beach. And it's a heavy dockland area, or it certainly was in, in 1914 and before. So the whole area there was was, was docks uh, right into the city centre, slumland, uh, very poor living conditions, high infant mortality rate, low wages, no wages in many cases, people living on the breadline, people who were some unionised, but in those days there were, there were issues about the way in which the unions worked with the, the, the dock companies. 
a lot of immigration, particularly Irish immigrants working in that area, and a very low level of of life really. Um, and that's that's contrasted with the rest of the area as you sort of move further north and round the edge into into Crosby, into Waterloo, up to Formby and Southport, where you've got beautiful sands. It was the start of the Edwardian tourism industry. Um, you've got market gardening out into the into the hinterland of Lancashire, and and this battalion, one of the one of many in the Liverpool Regiment, but a territorial battalion which was recruiting in both areas, both the slums of Bootle, but also the uh, the more refined areas of uh, of Southport. And and I think it's part of that that issue is is the contrast of how do you get those people to cooperate, how do you get them to work together. And and that that was one of the things that interested me about the whole battalion, really. Some of the other Liverpool battalions have got key focus. You know, the 10th is the Scottish, the 8th is the Irish, the 6th is the Rifles. But the 7th didn't, didn't have any kind of real theme to it. Uh, and that that's what was key, I think, to me about how do they gel together? How do they become an effective force? So what was the social composition of the unit, I suppose, before the Great War? So it was a territorial force unit. It was set up for home defence. And then once the war was declared and it started to recruit... Um, additional men did that social composition change over that time or did it remain relatively relatively um stable i think i think it was it was relatively stable the, the what seems to have happened is that pre-war um you know the, the territorials are the traditional saturday night soldiers and so on but the the very fact that they recruited in in bootle demonstrates that they were not just your um your artisans and your middle classes and, and officers were all all from outside and doctors but um the, certainly once once the war was declared the the recruitment figures shot up and they they were on to recruiting the third line within within two months in that particular battalion you've got to remember this is an area with an intense number of regiments all recruiting at the same time so you know the the composition um, seems to have been uh, relatively relatively the same as it was before the war. Most people volunteered to to go overseas when they when they were given that option in uh, in September November September sort of September to November time wasn't it? I think when that happened. And so the the the, the level of representation, if you like, from all areas was was significant. And I think. Some of the evidence points to that, some of the statistics point to that, when you look through, for example, the, the casualty list and where those those men came from, that demonstrates that there was this balance between the two areas. And was there any sort of dominance of occupations? I mean, were, were large groups of men drawn from particular employers or particular professions? Yeah, it's very difficult to pin that down um, from the evidence. Uh, I think one of the only ways you can do that is a thorough research of all service records of all the men that are left. Uh, at, the, at the National Archives, and, and that is a, certainly a time-consuming and, and lengthy task. I think I think what you have to do is look at what were the sorts of occupations in, for example, the 1911 census, where you've got the range of professional clerical teaching, got uh, insurance, but you've also got workers in, in the docks, on the agriculture and construction and chemicals, uh, in textiles. And so as I say, because you can you can hypothecate that the number of people who came from this area, what they were doing, um, and these are the these are the the professions that they left. And if you tie that into the occupations of women during the war, particularly in uh, particularly in explosives and munitions factories that were established in Bootle and North Liverpool, and as far as Aintree, then 
you see where those gaps appear, and that was that's obviously the area where the men had left. Can you give us a brief history of what happened to the 7th Battalion during its operational service uh, during the First World War? The territorial battalions were not really looked upon with any great favour by Kitchener and his, his colleagues during the autumn of 1914. And we all know the story about the raising of the Kitchener armies and the PALs. In reality, the territorials plugged a huge gap because uh, the British Expeditionary Force suffered quite dramatically in those first few months managed to hold on but as soon as the 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 winter was over into 1915 the territorial battalions started piling into france and they were attached to the various regular divisions across the line but what they were doing was 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 really providing extra bulk extra ability and and i suppose in a way you know they were the half trained people who were able to be trained up very quickly between august september through to february march 1915 so that they were able to effectively uh, hold the line and, and carry out um, the, the assaults of the, of the early spring. The, the training of the Kitchener armies, of course, meant so much longer the Kitchener armies than PALs came into effect much, much later. But they're the ones who's, who seem to have attracted most attention in the historiography. So from, from March 15, this battalion uh, and uh, the, other, the other ones like it across the country were working with um, the regular battalions. The 7th was in, first of all, joined the 2nd Division and then the 7th Division. And, and sort of fluctuated a bit with the fifth and sixth, but but essentially their first piece of action was in in uh, 1915 at, at a place called Festubert, which is in the pretty much the centre of the, of the line, and that that was one of their key defining moments. After after Festubert, they they were vaguely involved at Luz, then uh, part of the reserve bit north of the actual battle site but uh, involved in support and, and reserve and then in 1916 they were put back into the 55th west lancashire territorial division which by then had been reformed and so they spent the rest of the war in that division which included the the somme the the end of the somme battle september time uh, sometime uh, at heat and uh, the suffered in the spring offensive in march April, May 1918, and then they had a, a, a role in the central advance um, through uh, through that area of France and toward, towards Belgium in the in the final advance. So you talk about the significance and importance of local identity of the men um, in the 7th Battalion and that this could affect their morale and combat performance. I wonder if you could tell us firstly what their local identity was and how did this change over the course of the war? The, the, the identity they, they had, I think, was, was focused on, on the, the place that they came from. And they would say that they were they were brutal men, or they were Southport men, or sand grown grounders, as, as they were known locally. And the evidence of the of their community identity is it comes from firstly through their response to to the community and their letter writing home and their uh, their their emphasis on the, the local area and their pride in coming from West Lancashire. And and then secondly, and the significance of the first battle that they were involved in at Festubert, which becomes a kind of totem for them throughout that war. And people who survived that battle being referred to as Festubert veterans by the end of the war. There's a, a level of dilution which um, went through as, as various battalions were were dissipated, were suffered huge casualties and, and obviously were reinforced with drafts from other places. But the evidence that I've in, uncovered through 
looking at the, the, the statistics in, in soldiers died in other places shows that although the physical numbers of people by the end of the war, people who came directly from Southport or Formby or Crosby or Bootle or Littleland, that direct number had obviously fallen. But the overall total of people who were still from southwest Lancashire had maintained a very high level. So the majority of people in the in that battalion, as I believe in the division, were from southwest Lancashire and it truly was a Lancashire division. And so when when they come back, they those veterans, those guys still have that local community identity as a whole. And, and there's evidence through the various um, operations that, um, you know, the, the emphasis on the Red Rose, the emphasis on Lancashire is, is absolutely crucial to the way they feel their morale and um, in in the view of the Divisional General, their effectiveness on the battlefield. So just for our readers, the Red Rose is the symbol of Lancashire. Oh, yes. Did I need to explain that? <laughs> So I think one area that your book covers is also the home front and how important that was. What sort of um, stories and, and impact does the home front have on the men and vice versa? What impact does the men's struggle at the front have on the home front? The, the area that we're talking about, is, as I say, is heavy in market gardening. There's a kind of, this is a, an overall uh, approach, but the heavy on market gardening, um, which was obviously feeding the area. So there's a, when you come to the period of, of 1916, when you're getting people going to military tribunals and asking for exemptions to conscription, a lot of the reasons for those exemptions are about supporting the family farm and keeping the food going and all that kind of that kind of stuff. The other emphasis towards, towards Liverpool is the munitions. And there were n- numerous types of munitions factories that were supported. Shell factory at um, Cunard Shell Factory was was uh, extremely effective in producing shells, uh, and was the majority of workers there were women. Um, there was an aircraft factory at Aintree. There's a uh, an explosives factory at Littleland. There is a cartridge factory. So all these all these munitions factories were producing armaments and also of course smaller smaller companies who were working on contract basis to those larger companies so there's a lot of there's a lot of um, buy-in by the local community to the effectiveness of the war and a lot of it is about the women doing that and how they are contributing although they might not be fighting but they are certainly contributing in in building and developing armaments and suffering as well there's a number of cases of, of people dying and fewer explosions and the, the second area in which women contribute is is through care, because the uh, the, the hospitals uh, in Liverpool were obviously given over to the wounded, and um, although they're quite considerable away from the south coast, they were used effectively and increasingly for convalescence, as as the uh, the, the the high high risk wounded were, were were obviously nearer to where they had been brought into Britain. As you move further north, the hospitals tend to get more on a convalescence basis. And the and the other area really is is about uh, the 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 link with shipbuilding and. Um, in particular, in 1915, the sinking of the Lusitania, which really hit the community very, very hard, because so many of the stewards and staff crew of the Lusitania were from Liverpool, and um, Cunard at that time was its headquarters were in Liverpool. So there was a very, it was a very local feel to all that. I think perhaps one, one of the, one of the other aspects about the home front is that there is a view, or there has been a view, that there's this gulf between the home and the war front. That the 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 letters which appear in the local newspapers after attack where soldiers have written back probably 
many cases just written to their their parents or their wives, and those, those people have then taken it to the newspaper. But some some have written it directly to the paper and said what had happened and what what they were feeling, who had been killed, what the what the what the place looked like, and so on. That was very prevalent in 1915, and it gradually um, dies down. But even even after their experience um, at at Ypres in 1917, there was still letters appearing in the local paper from men at the front. So there's no, I don't think there's any doubt that people at home knew the, the degree, the levels of privation, the, the sorts of injuries that were being um, taken. I don't think there's that, that any doubt that, that people did know what was going on. And so the, the links were maintained throughout. And and yes, of course, there were there were going to be dips and troughs. I'm not saying it was it was perfect, but but there is this, this view that there was this big gulf. I think is is misfounded. And the last element of your book looks at how West Lancashire commemorated and remembered the war. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes. Well, I think this is one of the most interesting things. Actually, is is the way in which the way in which local communities tried to come to terms with what happened and how they could assist in the rebuilding uh, uh, of the devastation stated areas and how they could do something about rebuilding their local communities at home. And we've all heard the stories, and I'd, I'd relate some of them in the book about how peace marches, um, you know, were, were were disrupted by veterans who were, had been left on the scrap heap, who didn't have jobs, who were who were injured, and were being were not on the front. On, not on the front row at the opening of the war memorial and those kind of things and that was that's all very true and very um disturbing uh, approach to to the way in which some of those some of the, the veterans were treated but there's also a, a, an element there about trying to use local memorials not just as great blocks of stone but as something useful so hospitals or or homes for heroes or you know some some kind of scholarship um for children to be able to go to school and the other aspect is what they did with with the the villages in France and there was a, a charity that was set up called the British League of Health which on a national level had a, a relatively short life but but locally some 50 odd towns and cities in the UK and the abroad adopted local villages in France and Flanders and helped them to uh, to to recuperate and that meant raising money it meant actually visiting Thomas Cook did awfully well out of pilgrimage tours in the 1920s um, and also carrying on relations right up until uh, the start of the Second World War and there were school children being taken over in, in 1929 uh, as well so the the link the, the local link then becomes really clear because Southport adopted Festi Bear because of those links with the 7th Battalion. Liverpool adopted Givenchy because of the memorial, uh, the, the, the divisional memorial to that area. Blackpool adopted Neuve Chapelle, Preston, Blackburn. All these, these places within that that Lancashire area, we're adopting towns and villages in in a similar area, and that this spread all along the line. But but it is an interesting concept. It's almost like the it's almost like the twinning which occurred after the Second World War when the twinning movement took off and and tried to um, engender that that international relationship of of developing peace and harmony and, and reconstruction. And and this was a this was a kind of a an embryonic version of that, which really only founded because of um of, of the onset of war again in 1938-39. Finally, where can people get your book from? All good bookshops. Uh, directly from Helion Press, which is www.helion.co.uk. Adrian, thank you very much for your time. Cheers, Tom. Thank you. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>